a time and a place. Every story requires those elements. In this story, the place is here, where we're walking right now, in Gary, Indiana. More specifically, we're walking south along Jackson Street in Gary and away from the intersection of 5th and Jackson, where a star baseball player crossed paths with a man who had a loaded shotgun and an intention to use it. That's the place. The time was long ago, in 1978. But the time's also right now, as we walk down Jackson Street on this cold February day in 2022. Almost 44 years have passed between then and now. Think of all that's changed in between. Were you born yet in 1978? But life here, along Jackson Street and Gary, doesn't look very different at all. In a lot of ways, it's terrible in its sameness, in its lack of progress, even in its violent repetition. That shotgun blast in 1978 was fired by a man we'll meet shortly, a bit later in this episode. But the shots could have been fired on any given day in Gary. Right now, officers from all over the area rushing to Northwest Indiana after a veteran Gary police officer is shot. In fact, just this month on Fifth Avenue and Lincoln Street, which is a couple of blocks from where we walk right now, a police officer was shot when someone opened fire and hit him. That officer, a 32-year veteran of the Gary PD, was treated for a gunshot wound to the shoulder and survived. But the sound of that gunfire, that may have been familiar to anyone in Gary who heard it. Familiar, but never easy. Not now, and not then. Not when Lyman Bostock's uncle heard gunfire all those years ago. All of a sudden, I heard something like a flat tire or something, or some tire blew out or something. And uh, I looked around, and I think Barbara say, Tom, your nephew's been shot. That's the voice of Tom Turner, Lyman Bostock's uncle, speaking in 2008, recounting their time together in Gary, Indiana, on the night of September 23rd, 1978. When they drove off that night with Lyman in the back seat of Tom's Buick Electra 225, neither they nor the two women they were dropping off a few blocks away had any idea there was a car pulling out behind them. The car would tail them for several long blocks through the city streets and then pull up alongside at a red light at the intersection of Fifth and Jackson. In the next moments, a single shotgun blast fired. This has all the makings of just a true American tragedy. In the more than 150-year history of Major League Baseball, only one player has ever been murdered during a season. This is the story of that player, of that murder, and of what happened to the man who murdered him. For Fox Sports Audio, I'm Tom Rinaldi, and this is Wesley, an episodic podcast telling the story of the life, career, and death of Lyman 
Wesley Bostock. tradition in my family that I'm just carrying out right now. Lyman Bostock, star outfielder, shot to death late last night in Gary, Indiana. Definitely Hall of Fame, no doubt in my mind. Here's the drive for another left fielder, Minnesota's Lyman Bostock. Good timing, Lyman. This kid always had the smile on his face, that confidence. Do you hear Lyman's gonna get back a salary? He donated it to a church here at home in L.A. Leonard Smith. I hate to hear that name called. My first thought in my head is, people actually shoot Major League Baseball players? A 31-year-old man has been charged with the murder of baseball star Lyman Bostock. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. He had to live the rest of his life in the home. Excuse me, Leonard, I'm Tom Rinaldi. I have no comment. Goodbye. It was just the finality of it. It's like walking into a brick wall. Whenever people are talking about miscarriages of justice, I'm always like, I got a story for you. Episode 5. Wrong Place, Wrong Time. Saturday, September 23rd, 1978. Lyman Bostock started his day listening to one of his favorite songs, Land of Make-Believe by Chuck Mangione. Although he had a game that afternoon against the White Sox, Lyman spent the morning at his uncle's house in Gary, Indiana, before heading to the ballpark. In the late 1970s, Gary was far from anyone's fairy tale and not a place a professional baseball player might stop to visit. Lyman did, often, because of the aunts, uncles, and cousins who lived there. Jack Crawford was the Lake County prosecutor at that time, and his jurisdiction covered Gary. In the 10 years that I was prosecutor, Gary, Indiana, had the highest murder rate three times in the entire country. Uh, We had such a serious problem, and drugs, like a lot of other places, became a prevalent commodity. Uh, Cocaine and methamphetamine, all those drugs, people started to traffic in those drugs, which results in a lot of crime and a lot of homicides. It became known, sadly enough, as Murder Capital USA. For a large part of the 20th century, As America became the world's leading producer of steel, Gary was a thriving furnace of a city. With thousands of jobs, a bustling downtown, promise of greater opportunity for families migrating from the Jim Crow South, as Lyman's own family had done. By 1978, two decades after Lyman and his mother Annie Pearl left the city, Gary had been transformed, its promise gutted and stripped. Roll Tapp was Lyman's cousin, who grew up in Gary. Like a lot of blue-collar towns, the steel mill started to become obsolete. And with that, the whole city started to deteriorate. The whole 
place became almost as if someone decided to say, hey, we're all relocating, and they left. And with not an economic base, poverty hit, crime became more prevalent, and it's never recovered. Gary had a simpler shape and definition for Lyman, family. So he visited every time he played in nearby Chicago. The Angels were barely hanging on in a pennant race, Lyman chasing another 300 season when he arrived at Comiskey Park that Saturday to face the White Sox. Uveen actually thought about coming east on an unplanned trip to see Lyman. I don't know, it's just a feeling. A couple of days before I was thinking of surprising him and flying out, flying out and surprising him for the game and to see the family. And I didn't. So that's a regret I have that I didn't go because I think the outcome would have been different. Why do you say that? He wouldn't have been where he was at the time. Lyman had two hits in his first two at-bats in the game. When he reached third base in the third inning, he had a brief conversation with a former teammate from the Twins, White Sox third baseman Eric Soderholm. Years later, Soderholm would tell a reporter what Lyman had told him, that he'd gotten his life straightened out off the field and it had turned things around on it. Lyman's wife, Yuvine, understood what he meant. It was about his marriage and his relationship and what he was doing. And um, I think he had really sort of gotten to a point where he was really ready to settle down. And we've had challenges trying to have kids and he was really, you know, ready to just settle down, focus in, concentrate on family, focus in on his career. And um, it just never got to happen. Lyman made the final out of the game, with the Angels losing 5-4. The loss all but ended the team's playoff hopes. Lyman took the loss hard and left the clubhouse quickly. He'd invited a few teammates, including Kenny Landro, to join him post-game in Gary for a family dinner. The plan was to leave from the team hotel after the game. I would always go out to eat with, with Lyman all the time. We, you know, we'd always go out, and we, he would always take care of us young guys. He said, my, my uncle's out there waiting. He's, he's picking us up. I said, okay, I'm going to ride back to the hotel with you. I guess I took too long. And, and what happened was uh, I rushed down to the lobby, and uh, I asked some of the players down there. I said, hey, you guys see Lyman? They go, they go yeah, he was looking for you. They just left, you know, and so I ran out the lobby door to look and see if they was walking to the car or something, and they, they were already gone. It's a decision that Landro still thinks about decades later. Why did I miss that ride? Why? I don't know why. I, I call it divine intervention myself because I was supposed to be with him that night. Would we have gone on a different route because uh, there's one more person 
could that have changed things, just him there, as opposed to having one, two, or three of us, maybe that would have changed the whole, the pathway of, of running into that unfortunate situation or time. What's it like to live with that, Ken? It has not gone away yet. It never goes away. Lyman had gotten in his Uncle Tom Turner's gray Buick and made the short 25-mile trip to Gary. That Saturday night would be Lyman's last chance that season to visit with his relatives there. All the trips to Chicago meant trips to Gary, according to Tom Turner, from an interview we did back in 2008. He was elated. He felt like he was coming back to his family because he would get anywhere from 40 to 50 tickets every time he would come here. And we were all in one little spot rooting him on. After having dinner that night with his relatives, Lyman asked about a childhood friend, Joan Hawkins, a goddaughter to his Uncle Tom. Lyman would sometimes read to Joan on summer trips back to Gary. Before heading back to Chicago, Tom and Lyman drove a few blocks over to see Joan, who was at home with her sister, Barbara Smith. After a short visit, Lyman, Barbara, and Joan all came out. When he came out, he says, Tom, uh... Barbara and Joan want me to drop them off over to their cousin's house. Is it okay? I said, sure. Uh, I don't mind. They got in the car, and uh, we drove off. They didn't know there was a car park just outside the house, waiting. Sitting behind the wheel was a man named Leonard Smith. Barbara Smith's estranged husband. Leonard Smith. I hate to hear that name called. And next to Smith, on the passenger seat of his car, sat a 410 bore shotgun. It was loaded in case Leonard wanted to use it. Lyman Bostock had no idea anyone was following him, nor had any reason to, when he rode in his uncle's car through Gary that Saturday night, September 23, 1978. He'd never met Leonard Smith, nor heard of him. Smith was 31 years old, an unemployed steelworker from Gary, who, according to the Gary Tribune, had been arrested at least seven times since 1964, but never been convicted of a crime. He'd been married to his wife, Barbara, for four years. They had two daughters together. Leonard allegedly struck Barbara and pulled a gun on her just days earlier. She was seeking a restraining order against him when she got in the back seat of Tom Turner's car next to Lyman. Leonard Smith pulled up alongside Turner's Buick Electra at the intersection of Fifth and Jackson. At 10.44 p.m., Smith lowered his driver's side window 
aimed his shotgun toward the back seat of the Buick and fired. All of a sudden, I heard something uh, like a flat tire, a tire blew out or something. And uh, I looked around and I think Barbara say, Tom, your nephew's been shot. And that's when I looked around and he had slumped. And uh, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Turner got out of the car, rushed into a corner convenience store and pleaded for help. Asked somebody would they please call the ambulance so I could get my nephew to the hospital. He'd been shot. Lyman, seated closest to Leonard and the shotgun, was hit by the blast near his right temple. I couldn't believe somebody just shot off in the car. And that's when Barbara looked over and she knew her husband. Uh, She said, that's my old stupid husband and shot uh, Lyman, you know. So I couldn't imagine why would he do it because she was sitting all the way over in one corner of the car and he was sitting all the way over in the other corner. He was sitting right up on the window. An ambulance arrived quickly, pulling Lyman out of the car and rushing him to St. Mary's Mercy Hospital. Lyman was still alive. Not long after, the phone rang back in Los Angeles. Lyman's wife, Yuvine, was getting ready to host a Bible study session with other players' wives when she answered. And it just so happened that his mom was at the house I got a call from, I don't know if it was the angel's secretary, road secretary, or someone from the organization called and told me that he had been shot. When you hung the phone up, Yuvine, from the secretary calling you and telling you, first thought. Shock. Shock. Like, you just you got to get there. Because at that point, we didn't know what, the, you know, the severity of the injury or what to expect. We were just all just, like, devastated and shocked. You know, I think they made the arrangements for us to catch the first flight out, which was Continental Airlines. Red Eye. A bit later that night, with Lyman in intensive care, the news began to reach his team, as players and coaches were hearing what sounded impossible. Among the first to hear was Kenny Landro, who Lyman had invited to come with him to Gary that night. It was like about two or three in the morning, the phone rings. It was our trainer, Fast Freddy. I go, hello, and and, and Freddy goes, I got some bad news right now, man. Uh, Lyman got shot. I said, what? 
He says, yeah, Atlanta got shot. He's, he's in Gary, Indiana. All I know is he's in surgery. And boy, that night became very long. Word would spread through Lyman's family in Gary, passed through the houses where his aunts, uncles, and cousins lived. One cousin was Roll Tapp, whose mother was a nurse. Tapp's mother went to the Mercy Hospital Intensive Care to see if she could help Lyman in any way. Tapp has never forgotten what his mother told him about Lyman's condition. He was still breathing. She said half his face was missing. And he could never be the same. He would never be a person. She said that she just could not imagine, imagine him being with us if that, that. I was like, whoa. She said, no, it was just, it was too horrendous for words. Yuvine and Lyman's mother, Annie, were at the airport to board a red-eye flight to Chicago. In 1978, long before the advent of cell phones, Yuvine heard her name being paged over the airport's EA system. His mom's sister, and we pick up the phone, and she tells us that he died. And his mom just passes out in the airport. She just collapses. You know, it was horrible. So we take this whole three and a half hour flight to Chicago, just the two of us. They put us, you know, we were in first class, no one around us, and it's just the two of us sitting in this dark plane because it's night to reach Chicago. It was the longest flight of my life. It was horrible. When the flight landed, Yuvine and Annie Pearl were taken straight to the hospital. House, kind of like a zoo. They had police there. They met us on the tarp and took us with sirens ablaze straight to the hospital. They took us to ER where he was laying on a table. And we got to say our goodbyes. It was Pretty horrible. Sorry. Very cold, very sterile. Lifeless. The environment, everything was just like lifeless. More than 40 years later, the moment remains indelible. You see it, but you still don't believe it. I think he's playing one of his little jokes. He's going to sit up. It was just the finality of it. It's like walking into a brick wall. Between 1.30 and 2 a.m. Central Time, the morning of September 24th, 1978, Lyman Wesley Bostock was pronounced dead. He was 27 years old.
Lyman Bostock, star outfielder for the California Angels, one of the highest paid players in baseball, shot to death late last night in Gary, Indiana. Lyman's other family, his team, was hurting in its own way. Here's Carney Lansford. We had just turned off the TV and just turned off the lights and we're going to go to bed. And the phone rang in our room calling to say that Lyman had been shot and they didn't know if he was going to make it or not. And we were like, we're just both set up and we're like, what What the heck is going on? Across the hallway from us was a couple of teammates, Danny Goodwin, and maybe Kenny Landro, and maybe somebody else. We're walking by our room and we heard them say, they don't think he's going to make it. And we had, had no idea what to do. I was probably more scared that night than I think I've ever been in my life. He actually invited me to go back to his home with him in Geary, Indiana. You think I could possibly sleep right now after that? So, you know, I was up the entire night scared to death. My first thought in my head is, people actually shoot Major League Baseball players? This is Bill Brooks, Lyman's brother-in-law, recalling that night. I can't remember specifically, but I may have gone to my room and, and, and just started crying. You know, he's, he's just starting his career. You know, this is like his third, fourth year in the majors. He's on the front end of his career. He's a young guy, 27 years old. Why did this happen? How could this happen? And then hearing that he didn't make it, man, it just it just ripped me apart. For some angels, the news quickly led to anger and rage. A number of Lyman's teammates wanted to leave the team hotel in Chicago and go to Gary to search for the man who'd shot and killed him. Kenny Landro recalls those conversations. There was a lot of revenge floating around. Lots of revenge floating around. And it's like, you know, I mean, me and my teammates, me and Danny Goodwin, we'll talk about that. We're like, hey, man, you know what? Maybe he needs to get a taste of his own medicine, <laughs> you know? An eye for an eye. <laughs> Simple as that. That's how I felt, an eye for an eye. Back in Gary, police officers interviewed Barbara Smith at Mercy Hospital. She had no question in her mind as to the man who shot Lyman. It was her estranged husband, Leonard Smith. She'd looked right into his face, described the hat he was wearing, a broad-brimmed hat with a white band on it. A short time later, officers went to Leonard's apartment, knocked on the door, and arrested him. Before being led away, Smith asked the officers for a favor. He wanted his hat, broad-brimmed with a white band on it. The officers obliged and took him into custody. Ken Shannon was a homicide detective in Gary at the time, and he recalled the arrest when we interviewed him in 2008. When we asked him what happened, man, he said, all over this bench. She did it all about this bitch. He just kept, 
like he was a rejected lover, rejected husband or whatever, uh, his animosity or whatever, I think everything was aimed at her. He was just so pissed off at her, like he was stalking her or whatever. And when he saw her in the car with another guy, he just bowed. For Jack Crawford, the Lake County prosecutor who would handle the case of the murder of Lyman Bostock, he had a visceral first reaction to the evidence against Leonard Smith. It was never really a question of who done it. Everybody knew right off the bat that the estranged husband of a lady named Barbara Smith was the uh, suspect in the case. And he was arrested, I think, within hours. Quite honestly, as a prosecutor and as a lawyer, I began to think to myself, this is an open and shut case. On the next episode of Wesley, the case against Lyman's killer takes a surprising turn. It's not a defense of who done it. As we know, everybody knew that Leonard did it. The only option that I recognized at the time was to file a defense of insanity. That's next time on Wesley. Wesley is produced for Fox Sports Audio in conjunction with Blue Duck Media. It's reported and hosted by me, Tom Rinaldi. Executive producers are Eric Shanks, Charlie Dixon, and me for Fox Sports. Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin for Blue Duck Media. Sound mixing and original scoring from Steve Porter and Porterhouse Media. Editing and sound design by Mike Goldstein. Audio field recording from Alan Chow. Jen Roman is our producer and production manager. Script consulting and research from David Sabino. Additional production and research from Quincy Tucker. Production support from Jonathan Berger, Matt Engelberg, Michael Vader, and Ben Redman. Special thanks to Yuveen Whistler and her family, the Lyman Bostock family, the incomparable Willie Weinbaum, Major League Baseball, and ESPN. ESPN.